0: I'm Gina Asher. Welcome to WFIU's Profiles. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community, as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers to the WFIU audience. Our guest today is Christoph Ermscher, Indiana University professor of English and author of several books that look at the works of 19th century American artists, writers, and scientists whose own work concerned nature and mankind's place in it. He's become an authority on the writing of John James Audubon, has written about the poetry of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and his next work is a biography of the scientist Louis Agassiz. Welcome, Professor Irmshire.
1: It's good to be here.
0: Your research into these early 19th century writers and other figures obviously relies on what those people left behind, the books, letters, manuscripts. You've said that your favorite place at IU is the Lilly Library, one of the top rare book libraries in the nation, and you even have gone as far to say that its presence was a major reason you came to IU in 2006. Has it lived up to its promise?
1: Absolutely. The Lilly Library has become a central feature of my work, my teaching, my my research, my scholarship. I I am what is usually referred to as an archival scholar, so I. Depend on materials, I depend on primary materials, I depend on letters, I depend on sources uh, that are made available to me. And the Lilly Library, thanks to um, its uh, mission, is a public institution that makes its materials available to everyone who wants to see what they have, which distinguishes it from other archival collections in the country that often place restrictions on access. To me, this is a very, very important factor in my my comfort level in using these materials. I know that what I'm doing at the Lilly Library is something that everybody else can do as well. So I can, in fact, uh, reach out to the public, not just to my students, but I uh, usually do classes for continuing studies. I try to draw people into the Lilly Library to make it possible for them to see what I see. So... It's not just about scholarship for me. It's also about sharing, about being able to take what I know and what excites me out to other people and excite them in similar ways.
0: So what have you found there?
1: It's It's hard to know where to begin with the Lilly Library. There are so many sources at the Lilly Library that are fascinating and interesting My area of expertise is in the 19th century, but even when I teach 20th century literature, I find resources that I can use for teaching. One of my favorite examples is the Sylvia Plath um, collection, which is one of the best in the world for the works of Sylvia Plath. It has everything from her library where you can actually pull out a book and show her notes to the students and show them that she was a reader just like they were. Sometimes she would annotate profusely. Sometimes she would not. Her letters are there. Her early poetry out there, there are even corrections by her teacher at Smith College who went over her poetry. Um, One example that I'd like to show students because it encapsulates so much about the life of Sylvia Plath is a a little schedule she made up for her nanny in London. It was for Frida Hughes, her daughter, and it shows the kind of the overly meticulous side of Sylvia Plath uh, because she maps out every part of the day even to the point of defining what her baby needs to eat when she needs to go to bed and so forth, it's typed out. And you see her at one point sort of shifting from the American diapers to the British uh, nappies because she's, she really wants to get her message across. And when you turn this sheet of paper, it's just a, just a little sheet of paper you see in somebody else's handwriting. It's a crazy wild handwriting. It goes across the entire page. You see somebody writing down lines, I want to see the earth scar, the exact spot through which he crept into fatness and so forth. And you wonder what that is. And it's Ted her husband, essentially using what she had intended to be. As a schedule for the nanny, using that for his own poetry, jotting things down, and it's this crazy, wild stuff. And there, in a nutshell, you have the difference between the two people. You also have, in a sense, the key to why the marriage didn't work out. In a way, you can make those poets come alive to the students in a way that the poetry sometimes does not to them. And of course, when I have a class in the lily, I can pass this around. They can touch it. That's what I meant by the public mission of the lily. They can hold it in their hands. They can see it. use his handwriting. They can see Plath using a typewriter. And this little item, in fact, is on Smith College memo paper. Mm -hmm. So it all comes together, in a sense, in this one little item. So, this is not so much what I do scholarship on uh, when I go back into the 19th century where I'm often more comfortable, more at home. Of course, the Lily Library has um, John James Audubon. You referred to him as one of my areas of expertise. And it has a complete, pristine set of the Birds of America, the most expensive printed book in the world, which is absolutely amazing for a public institution. And you can have those volumes brought out and you can have a class look at them. You can have them, um, you know, appreciate the texture of these images. It's right in front of them. And in a way, it, there's nothing like it. So, yes, it has lived up to its expectations for me.
0: And before you got to this wonderful place that's valuable to your work, uh, what, what kind of path did you follow to end up in Bloomington, Indiana?
1: Rather circuitous route. I I was born in Germany. I'm a native of Germany, and I did not, in fact, start living in the United States before I was offered a position at the University of Tennessee, a visiting position way back in the 90s. Um, I did a postdoc at Harvard, and during my time at Harvard, I became hooked on archival research in a sense. I was invited to pursue a postdoc with one of the great old men of American studies, Daniel Aaron who's now in his 90s and still working, still writing, still in his office at Harvard University every day. And under his mentorship, I found my way into the kind of work I'm doing now. Harvard, of course, has amazing archival resources. Houghton Library is a place that has pretty much everything that a 19th century Americanist would want to lay his hands on, whether it's Henry James's manuscripts or You know, Audubon, of course, um, but also the papers of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, in whom I became interested while I was at Harvard. So I spent um, several years at Harvard. Uh, During that time, I met my wife, um, the composer Lauren Bernofsky, and um, it became clear that I was not leaving anymore uh, during that time. My first position, my first tenure-track position, I was teaching at Harvard as a lecturer in a non-tenure-track capacity, was in the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, in Baltimore, an urban campus, um, where I pursued my research and where I was given, because it was a smallish uh, setting for the humanities, was given the opportunities uh, to pursue what I wanted to pursue. They made sure that I had resources available, that I had time to travel, which is, of course, important for someone like me who wants to work with primary materials. And from Maryland, I came to Bloomington in 2006. I left Maryland to take up a professorship here. And one of the reasons, as you said, was the Lilly Library. Mm -hmm. Another reason was that someone I greatly admired before, Scott Russell Sanders, was still among the faculty. He's a writer I was inspired by. But he's also, and this is an aspect of him not many people know, he's an Audubon scholar. He had done one of the first editions of Audubon. Audubon that was really valuable to me when I started out my work. Uh, so we came here. Bloomington seemed a great place to raise our kids, and it all started coming together when I came here.
2: Let's
0: talk about Audubon a little bit. Um, the lily d- has, as you said, on display the giant birds of America. I believe they it's 435 plates, and they That's turn right, yes, one yes, page yeah. a week. So,
2: theoretically, yes. Theoretically, uh, yes.
0: And, of course, that's a very valuable archive they have there. But it is on display. It's under glass. But if you wanted to wander in each week, you could see a different bird. He painted them life-size. But while many know of his legacy as a naturalist and an artist, um, many don't know about his writing. And that's what really captivates you is Audubon's writing. You've even said that he should be mentioned in the same breath as Thoreau, John Muir, Rachel Carson – what are we missing by not knowing more about Audubon's writing? What have you uncovered?
1: I did start with an interest in the art, I have to say, because I, I didn't even know myself um, what a fantastic writer he was. I was captivated by the images. I was captivated by this crazy projects to paint the birds of America, all of them, that he could lay his hands on, essentially, literally, because he, he used specimens for his painting. I was not aware of how much he had written. I was captivated by his life story, and his life story shapes his writing. He was, in fact, born in Haiti, uh, in Le Cay, a place that was in the news for unfortunate reasons very much uh, last year, and uh, came to France um, when his father essentially tried to move him out of Haiti, which was wrecked by the revolution that was beginning there, the slave rebellion. Um, lived in France, came to America as a young man because he wanted to evade Napoleon's army. He didn't want to be drafted into it, and that life story—this crazy, crazy story of someone who was born in the New World, was raised in France, came to America, um, essentially not knowing very much about that country, and then was seized with this desire to find all the birds that he could that he could identify um, and produce. This absolutely insane work, it was expensive, it was uh, great hardship to his family, it was essentially unsupportable, his wife had to work so that he could pursue what he wanted to, Um, that shapes every line of his writing because he is so consumed with an almost manic desire to be as complete as he can, to be as accurate as he can, to be as faithful as he can. And when he writes about his encounters with birds and there's over 3,000 pages of writing, published pages of writing, there's much, much more in manuscript, um, some of it published, other manuscripts are still waiting to be published in their proper form. Um, when you look at this record, it's just, it just sort of grabs you right away. He's not a native speaker of English which attracted me uh, for obvious reasons. He's, um, he's not grammatically correct. He walks into these areas that no one else wants to go into, um, gun in hand, uh, paint box um, hanging from his shoulder, hunts these birds down, and almost always something happens that he didn't expect. He expects to be the one in control, Very often it turns out that he's not, that these birds look back at him. They know they are going to die. They fight. They defend their families and so forth. And all of a sudden, the really strange being in these essays, stories, whatever you want to call them, is not the bird. It's the human being that uh, is unmasked in its pathetic desire to make a dent into a world that for Audubon was still completely unlimited and superseded everything humans could could aspire to. It's almost a metaphor for the kind of desire for freedom that Audubon feels, uh, that he wants to aspire to himself. But the birds are always many, many steps ahead of uh, him. They don't know boundaries. They don't respect boundaries. They travel where they want to with the speed of light. Uh, essentially, and he is always trying to catch up with them. So when I teach Audubon, this kind of desire to get away from an anthropocentric understanding of nature, one where humans are what makes the world go round, is what I emphasize, because it's in those texts. And he's so interesting because he's not a saint. He's not a patron saint of conservation. He killed thousands of birds. Even
0: though his name inspired... The Audubon Society. It inspired the
1: Audubon Society indirectly because after his death, his widow, Lucy Audubon, who was as remarkable as he was, one of her private students was George Bert Grinnell, um, founder of the Audubon Society. And he would see in Audubon's house, uh, which is no longer extant, his house um, in the Bronx or what is now the Bronx, he would see those wonderful images. And in a sense, while he killed the birds, he did preserve them on canvas in his Printed books, really, because Audubon was never really interested in the unique watercolor that he produced of a bird. He wanted those prints, he wanted those images to be shareable. And Birds of America is a printed work. He wanted them to essentially go out into the world and to be appreciated, to be admired uh, by the people who, of course, were paying him for his work. So that was an aspect as well. But that was what he had in mind, this shareable image of something that he had seen that he wanted to recreate on the page as as faithfully as possible, life-sized, as you said.
0: Mm -hmm. Which sounds so contradictory because he preserved them for us but had to kill thousands of them and he killed – more than he actually needed, is that right? That yes. he would find just the right one that he wanted to paint. Which,
1: of course, in to some in some ways, was contingent on um, you know the kind of tools he had available. If you use a shotgun, it's not a very precise tool, and if you shoot little birds with it. He was essentially – he needed to shoot many of them to find a usable specimen that was not so damaged, um, not to put too fine a point on it, that he could not use it uh, for his painting. He would paint birds um, drawn from life, as he said. So essentially uh, he would take a freshly killed specimen, rig it up on a board, and then start drawing it. Um, essentially using, as he did in his prose, using all the materials that were available to him. In his prose, he would use whatever word came in handy. When he, uh, when he produces watercolors, he would use watercolor. It's actually watercolor is not really a precise word. He would use watercolors. He would uh, use pastels. He would use uh, egg white. Sometimes he w- would use his hands, really, to um, pencil, of course. He would use his hands to to create the effect on the page that he wanted. But it was just for him. It was just a model for what the engraving was supposed to look like. But you're right. It is, it is. It defies our understanding of how one should interact with nature. Yet when I discuss it with students, they quickly focus on the contradictions that we all experience in our relations with nature, the way we even today damage it every single day. And – At the same time, we feel this desire that Audubon, towards the end of his life, felt very, very intensely, that desire to protect, to preserve. There are passages in Audubon's work where he says, what is happening? I'm not seeing these birds around anymore. Last year, I saw many more. Where have they gone? And especially when he goes up north to Labrador and he sees uh, the damage that poachers do, um, people who steal the eggs on bird islands. He looks at the devastation. He sees people using clubs and oars and just knocking birds' brains out. And, and he looks at that and is absolutely devastated by it and uh, feels that uh, he cannot go on after afterwards. Of course he does. He goes back home and picks right up where he left, right? But such is life in some ways.
0: Even though he observed it, he didn't exactly take it to heart,
1: it's important to me that we, undersh- that we don't sort of superimpose a 21st century sensibility on, what, on a 19th century artist and ornithologist and writer. Audubon had no sense, no theoretical understanding of nature being limited in any way. He felt that this was an infinite repository of beautiful things. He did see the damage that was done locally. But he could not connect the dots. He did not understand that this was a a mass extermination that would, in fact, lead to entire species being extinct. He could have seen it. And sometimes it's maddening to read his texts and, you know, see him sort of have an insight. And you go like, oh, my God, why don't you understand what is happening? Why don't you understand your complicity in all that? But he won't give us that.
0: And as you said, these are certainly modern-day world um, issues as well, and your students see that. You've also used Audubon uh, in conjunction with some um, special programs and workshops around the country and at Indiana University that look at sustainability, which is kind of a buzzword now. Um, What other authors or what other people from the early 19th century have you been able to use to show – how some of the old issues are today's issues.
1: One example that I like to use in class because it's uh, pretty localized and memorable is actually from 1791, so shortly before uh, the turn of the century. It's William Bartram's travels. Um, William Bartram is a favorite of mine. Um, He was a Philadelphia botanist, naturalist, draftsman, who spent years traveling the South. And uh, on his travels, uh, he was actually, the first time he went there, was only 17, he went went with his father. They went to one tiny area in Georgia where they found something, a beautiful plant that he couldn't identify. He goes back later, 10 years later, finds the plant again. It's the Franklin tree. It's known as the Franklin tree. A beautiful flowering shrub. He writes about it. He does an amazing drawing of it. And goes home, he takes a graft of that tree, uh, takes it with him to his father's botanical garden in Philadelphia and cultivates the tree. And the prose in his work called Travels is just so intense because there's this unique shrub that he hasn't found anywhere else. He knows it's absolutely remarkable. I uh, People read his descriptions. They want to go back. Find that tree, and by by eighteen o three, when people go back to this one area where the tree was found, there is only a couple of specimens left. When Bartram saw it, there were two acres. Now the tree is gone from nature; it lives on essentially as a cultivated tree. Um, all the trees, all the uh, specimens we have today, are grafts of that one tree mm. in Bartram's Botanical Garden. It's sort of an image of interference in nature in some ways. No one really knows why the Franklin tree disappeared. It's a cultivated, essentially, plant today. It's entirely gone from, from the world around us, in, in nature at least. It's in a sense a metaphor for things I want to show to students and um, just showing them that drawing that Bartram did, showing him his description of the plant on site And then talking about what happened to it and why is it gone encapsulates, in a way, uh, the kind of message I want to bring across. It's sort of a little parable about um, the kind of damage that, for whatever reason, happens to uh, nature around us. And this is an early writer. I also show them in Bartman's prose how the kind of mutual relations between organic beings informs his sentences, his sentence structures. He's drunk with the beauty of a world where he sees everything interconnected. And I I kind of extend this when I look at other writers. Um, Another favorite of mine is George Perkins Marsh, um, Man and Nature, 1863, who actually in 1863 writes about the necessity for balance in nature for what he does call mutual relations between inorganic, organic beings. And then after he's offered that definition of sustainability, the next sentence in, in Marsh's book is, man is everywhere a destructive agent. So he has that image of balance, of mutual relations. And he has also the sense that there's only one being that interrupts this kind of mutuality, that walks in there, and in a sense tears the fabric of nature the web of nature, which is a metaphor that becomes important to Rachel Carson, whom we mentioned uh, earlier in our conversation.
0: So many students are very interested in environmental issues, young right. people in America. Are they ever disheartened to hear that people were aware and talking about this 200 years ago? Perhaps they f- the students may feel, you know, nothing's happening Or or are they inspired by this?
1: One thing that I uh, try to avoid when I talk about these things is preachiness, Mm -hmm. which is why focusing on someone like Audubon, who is so flawed in many ways, makes it easier for students not to be disheartened, but to look at this man and his writing and to see some of their their own compromises essentially being enacted for them in his writing and his art. And we have conversations about... um, about Audubon, about Thoreau, and so forth. And I generally find, especially last semester, that students are way more committed, way more enthusiastic, way more, way more ready to do things than they were in the past, um, my generation uh, even earlier generations that I taught, uh, we had a terrifically successful, a successful semester focused on sustainability at Indiana University last semester. And I was I was really heartened by the student interest in the events that we put on. Uh, we had an environmental activist, Sapanka Banerjee, come to campus. There was an exhibit on at the uh, School of Fine Arts Gallery his public presentation um, on climate change, really, and, and on the Arctic, an area he knows very well, was very well attended. There's a great deal of student interest in these things. And I think they're ready to teach us something about commitment and about moving forward.
0: We'll take a little music break with some a piece that you've chosen. It's Schumann's Andantino. Tell us why you chose that.
1: It is from a sonata by Schumann, the sonata in G minor, which he spent several years working on It was during the time that he uh, was desperately in love with his wife, Clara, a great pianist and composer as well. When he sent it to her, um, she wrote him back a very touching line. She said, um, I love it as I love you, she said. And this Andantino is, in fact, based on a song that he'd written earlier Um, It's a a little song, beautiful little song about um, autumn, and the the speaker in that uh, poem the song is based on is asking the birds to be silent because he wants his voice to be heard by her, his beloved. So this Andantino is, in a sense, uh, an expression of his love for Clara. The reason why I like this recording, too, it's played by a friend of mine, an Icelandic pianist, Jan Sigurdsson. It's from his second CD, and he's just a terrific player. I'm very, very fond of his playing. And so it reflects um, several kind of interests I have. And there's also autobiographical interest. Um, When I uh, took piano lessons as a child, it's a very, very important uh, part of my 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 childhood, really, my piano teacher would always uh, reward me uh, when I'd done my work well with a piece by Schumann, who who for her was the pinnacle of um, mastery in composition. Uh, So these memories go back a long way.
3: Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.
0: Welcome back to Profiles. I'm Gina Asher. We're talking today with Indiana University English professor Christoph Ermscher, who studies early 19th century figures who wrote about or studied the natural world. Urmscher is author of The Poetics of Natural History and a new book exploring the life of scientist Louis Agassiz. Welcome back. You've said that you specialize in eco-criticism. Tell us what that is.
1: It's a very intimidating term, and um, it actually has a history that is rather colorful. Eco-criticism looks at works of literature really, and tries to talk about how relations between humans and nature are being described in those works. They are literary texts that ecocritics focus on, even though I and other scholars have been trying to expand uh, the range of ecocritical work a little bit and take art history, for instance, into the fold as well. Really what ecocritics look for are descriptions of the relationships between nature and the the human subject, a narrator, characters, and so forth, that turn these relations into a problem to the extent that humans begin to reflect on their limitations, um, that they begin to see nature as something that supersedes them, something that is bigger than them, that questions who they are. So there's a kind of moral component in ecocritical work. You really want to look at texts that teach us something, often not a cheerful lesson about mm-hmm. who we are and what we do to nature. Um, the text that really inspired the ecocritical movement was Thoros Walden. It's sort of an iconic text. And the scholar who is really responsible for starting this movement uh, in academia, but also a little beyond it, is Lawrence Buell at Harvard University, Uh, He wrote a book um, on the environmental imagination, as he called it, in which he focused on Thoreau. And one thing that really defines eco criticism better than any academic essay is a passage from one of Thoreau's um, little essays, The Natural History of Massachusetts, where he says we need to go down to the level of the leaf. We need to adopt the insect view in order to understand anything about nature. See the world as an insect does not from the human perspective, which is essentially, ecocritics would say, a dominant perspective. We try to impose our viewpoint on it. So ecocritics are interested in those moments where people see something, often to the extent that they feel they can't really talk about nature anymore, where they feel the limitations of language, where they feel the limitations of their viewpoint, where they walk away from something they've seen in silence. And ecocritics, of course, had a bit of a, when the movement started, a bit of a hard time in the academy because the whole notion of reading texts ecocritically depends on assuming there's something out there, something beyond the text that is more important than the literary text. Call it nature, call it something else. And that came at a time when Academics were really obsessed with the idea that texts were everything. Everything is text. Everything is constructed. We make up our world, the world around us. Everything is a tissue of quotations and so forth. Ecocritics would say no. Um, the Association for the Study of Literature and the Environment that became identified with ecocriticism, uh, one of their mottos in the early days was I'd rather be hiking. And mm-hmm. The implication was I'd rather be out there than writing books. And, of course, this is not something that you really want to make part of your your tenure file if you're in a tenure-track position, that that you'd rather be doing something other than producing scholarship. Eco-criticism has become, as inevitably happens when you are in the academy, has become something way more complicated, way more complex these days. Um, They've incorporated other theoretical approaches, and now eco-critics write often as densely as their colleagues did when eco-criticism first started, which to me – is a bit of a loss. Um, one of the things that appealed to me when I became interested in that type of work was precisely the opportunity to reach out to other constituencies, uh, to reach the public, to 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 talk about things that were actually topical issues and that didn't just matter to a handful of other people in my own little area of scholarship. And it's become more important to me in recent years really to uh, produce – Work that's being read, that's being read widely. Um, of course, it's always a fond hope, and you know, I don't really want to reinvent myself as uh, somebody whose books end up on the bestseller tables at Barnes and Noble. But I made a step in that direction with the uh, with my bi- biographical work. Biography is not really a genre that um, is academically very appreciated because it also assumes that there's a life to be described. I wrote a semi-biography of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, a poet I cared about very deeply and still do. And and the Agassiz book, of course, was an attempt, too, to kind of branch out and to produce work that people might be interested in who have not studied English or history of science. And uh, for me, uh, that was just a wonderful challenge. It was also a moment where I felt I could bring myself into my work in ways that I hadn't done up to that point in my uh, scholarship, uh, which basically followed um, a kind of model of academic rigor that I've been taught as a, as a as a young man in the university, I'd increasingly sort of broken away from it. And my Longfellow book is sort of an attempt in also bringing my own voice to bear on what I find. But in the Agassiz book, I do much more of that because um, my perceptions are so informed by my own sort of changing – opinions about this man whose life I'm following and I empathize with him at points. At other points, I step back from him and in horror often and try to figure out how anyone can be so flawed and in other ways so wonderful. As a writer, for example, um, coming back to your question about why this was a departure for me, in some ways it was not because for Agassiz, popular science writing, was increasingly part of his mission. So he would publish articles on his science in general interest publications in the Atlantic Monthly. It would appear right next to a poem by James Russell Lowell or Longfellow and so forth. He would get an article from Agassiz on jellyfish. Or increasingly, his wife, as she became more vocal about um, her own scientific interests, she would take over and would write about expeditions about things her husband had discovered or her own opinion of them and so forth. So writing became a very, very essential part of what uh, this couple was trying to do. Elizabeth Agassiz went on to found uh, Radcliffe College. Um, She was part of the original group of people who inspired to found it and became the first president of Radcliffe College, which was part of her educational mission essentially.
0: With longfellow, too, uh, he was a somewhat of a rock star poet during right. his time who sort of fell out of popularity or favor right. yeah. so you have a habit of of looking at people who yeah. have been very popular then not right. popular right Tell us about longfellow
1: Longfellow was really the first professional male poet in America who was really successful at his craft, and at some point was just a poet. He was a professor at Harvard University, and he resigned from his position, which I think must be a first, someone resigning from a professor at Harvard because he was making more money with his poetry and wanted to have more time for his poetry. That indicates his rock star status, I think. My interest in Longfellow started not with his poetry, but with a little box of drawings I found in Houghton Library that he made for his children. Um, they are essentially cartoons with captions, some of them in French. He was trying to teach them French, but at the same time he was also in these uh, drawings. It's essentially sort of little picture picture books that he created. He was trying to create a world traveler. Um, Mr. Peter Piper is his name. He goes to France. He takes a bath in France. He has a haircut in France and so forth. What was important for Longfellow was that America be as cosmopolitan as it can be. And that came at a time when other writers like Emerson, writers we remember more fondly today, were calling for independence from Europe. We're essentially saying that we need to start over, we need to sever our ties. Longfellow kept repeating that American literature only makes sense if the many, many cultural tradition, the many languages, and for him this included Native American languages, if they be made part – of the national canon of literature. Uh, He implemented that in his own life. Uh, He spoke nine languages fluently. He read a dozen more. Um, He spoke those languages so well that travelers would always point out that they had no idea that he had not spent a lifetime essentially living in these countries. And I was attracted to this cosmopolitan model for American literature, which informs his poetry as well. Just as Agassiz is a speaker of many languages, a writer in many languages, Audubon is a, is a multilingual person and so forth. So there's this other component, this breaking away from these narrowly nationalistic models of what it means to be American. Longfellow was invested in that. I also found out that his poetry is actually quite good once you start reading it. Uh, it's beautiful. It's uh, It's very evocative. It's very craftsmanlike, but it's done by somebody who thinks very hard about poetry as a profession and thinks hard about the work that he needs to do. And I wanted to, in a sense, recover that for... An audience today, as it so as it happened, and I swear I wasn't aware of it. My book came out right in time for the Longfellow bicentennial, so all of a sudden I found myself sort of speaking to ne- historical societies, um, literary clubs, and so forth, which was very very different from the kind of audiences I had really been a, a speaking to before. Pop culture, right for yeah. you as well. Uh, well, in a sense,
0: yes. <laughs> you mentioned modern-day writers such as Scott Russell Sanders and others who reflect on nature and its clashes with the man-made world. And you address these issues through your 19th century authors in The Poetics of Natural History. But what about you personally? Do you write about nature? Is there an inner Scott Russell Sanders in you, or do you confine your <laughs> writing to the eco-criticism area?
1: This is an excellent question and one that I've been trying to evade for quite some time. I I did a fair amount of original writing um, in my 20s. I was never quite satisfied with it. And at some point, I reconciled myself to basically living vicariously through the experiences of others, um, which in a sense makes me sound like a parasite, somebody who needs other lives and other people's opinions in order to thrive I justify what I do by essentially telling myself when I write about the experiences of others, my own experience of writing enters into what I write on every single page. And I've tried to do more of this recently. So it's in flux right now. I'm in a place where I'm ready to be more confident to bring myself into everything I do. I've always done it to some extent, not creatively. But I do think of criticism as a sort of creative activity myself. Um, that's what people used to do. Our sense of literature in the emphatic sense as a creative enterprise is actually something fairly recent. And I tell my students all the time, you know, literature doesn't exist. I use an image from Terry Eagleton. Um, doesn't exist the way um, a beetle does, a bug does, right? It is a thing that is very, very fluid. There's criticism. Not creative work in the narrow sense of the word. There's nonfiction that is very, very personal, very, very creative, very poetic. Scott Russell Sanders is an example of that. Uh, Wilfred Sheed, who just passed away, is another example of someone who commands his own voice and a creative vision on the page of the essay. And that is something that has become more important to me in recent years, and something I want to cultivate. I was lucky enough with the Agassiz book to branch out and um get a trade press uh, to be interested in the work that i 'm doing, which for academics usually is considered to be an enormous step um, since you you are used to writing for university presses uh, and for me uh, it's a very exciting development. I grew up in Bavaria uh for most of my early childhood in touch with nature daily. I had a grandfather who was a, an agricultural inspector and uh, really knew this landscape very well, and I was deeply influenced by, by him and by his vision. And my commitment to what I do is indirectly informed by those experiences I had as a child. Uh, it, it has never stopped for me. And who knows where I'm going to be in a couple of years? Um, I'm I'm very excited about the point I'm at. Um, it sounds kind of egocentric to say that, but I am. I'm I'm excited about the point I'm at in my work currently, and I I hope to bring in more of myself um, in future years and to create this kind of fusion of um, you know rigorous investigation and personal opinion um, that has become kind of a recent discovery of mine.
0: And you're conveying this to your students as well. Apparently, I try to, many of the yeah. projects involve writing and even their kind of foray into eco-criticism. Um, yeah. Because of your teaching success, you've won several top teaching awards since coming to IU in 2006. And this usually means that students think highly of your classes. What kinds of things do they tell you? And I'm not talking about those end-of-the-semester evaluations. I yes. mean, what do you hear from them?
1: I hear from them that I respect them as fellow investigators in whatever we are doing. And this is really what I like to hear because this is my goal. I mean, not everyone, of course, is telling me that. But uh, the students who feel inspired to write to me usually point out that they felt taken seriously in what they wanted to do. And um, taking them out of the classroom, in a sense, distracting from my own presence, taking them to the Lilly Library, to the IU Art Museum, making them do projects at the end of the semester that are, in a sense, their own research projects has become a very important part of that. Um, so I don't insist on them reproducing what I tell them. I want them to find out things for themselves. So I assign to them letters, manuscripts, um paintings at the art museum that I want them to work on. And I tell them beforehand that I'm not an expert on these things, that they will be. I tell them that they will know much more about this particular item than I will. I make a point of not studying those items so that I can second-guess them before I get their work. Sometimes I go back and look at things. Sometimes they point out something to me that I haven't seen. And students do discover things that I didn't know, that librarians didn't know. It's a very, very exciting experience for them, and that, in a sense, is the essence of my teaching. People in the sciences from a very early point onwards work in labs and become part of projects that researchers pursue. We need to do the same thing in the humanities, I'm convinced. It's very, very important that we indicate to our students that this is a professional thing that they're entering into and to model for them possible work they might be doing with the degree that they are getting. Of course, we want them to be good writers and good communicators and so forth. But we also want to give them a slice of the kind of work that we are doing, of what got us hooked um, on this profession in the first place. And this is what I'm trying to do in the classroom.
0: You've also been working with teachers themselves through right. uh, workshops, through funded through the National Endowment for the Humanities, and they take place at your favorite place, the Lilly Library. Exactly. Yes. Um, these are K through twelve teachers, right? And they're from many disciplines. Yes. Yet the focus is on nature writing. Yes, it so is. So how is that received?
1: These are projects or institutes founded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. So these are grants you apply for. Um, They're competitive. Um, You need to essentially come up with a proposal, tell the National Endowment why this is worth investing in, and then you advertise them through the National Endowment for the Humanities. And this is done nationally, of course. So the first time we ran this summer course in 2010, we actually – 2009, I'm sorry – we actually had participants from as far away as Hawaii. One teacher had just returned from teaching in Latin America for a while. And I try to introduce them to work in the Lilly Library. We use Audubon as the central figure of the course. We look at the the engravings. We look at those marvelous books that are absolutely astonishing when you see them for the first time. But we also try to think about what to do with them. How to teach the past, how to write about the past, how to come up with assignments that make sense, and in a sense, how to promote our own writing after those, ex- uh, after we've looked at those um, books, after we've heard about those experiences. Um, I, I have co- writers on the faculty. Scott Russell Sanders is a co-faculty uh, member uh, next uh, summer, uh, summer 2011. Uh, I'm bringing a Canadian writer, Catherine Gauvier, who's coming all the way from Toronto. Dave Smith, who's the chairman of creative writing at uh, Johns Hopkins, is coming in. He's doing poetry workshops with the students in the afternoons. He's a very, very rigorous writing teacher. He takes these poems that these teachers write and rips them apart. And first time I saw him do that, I was, I was, I was horrified. And I thought, oh, my God, what is, what is he doing to them? And they came to me afterwards. They were so grateful. They said, for the first time, someone has taken my writing seriously he's spending – a lot of time looking at what I do and is telling me how to become better. Thank you. Um, he's coming again. And uh, Dave Smith last year, he was so committed to the Institute that even though he had an eye operation and couldn't really see very well, he came all the way from Baltimore, had a son show for him and sit next to him and read those poems to him so that he could work with the students. And that is the kind of thing I want to bring two teachers who are in such a bad position now all over the country, this funding taken away from them, opportunities taken away from them, I want to give them as close to a graduate experience, graduate school experience, as they can have. I bring in only the best faculty. I bring in only the best material. I, uh, I take them to one of the best libraries in the country where they can spend three weeks, three and a half weeks really, just focusing on something that is important to them. Only uh, teachers apply who feel that the institute can be important to them. Uh, They need to produce a narrative. They need to produce an essay. There's a committee that selects applications. So it's a pretty rigorous process.
0: So what's up next for you? Uh,
1: People have been trying to convince me to write a book on Audubon. Um, I've edited him. I've written essays on him. I haven't really written a comprehensive book about him. I'm also attracted to a a really unknown, now unknown, late 19th century, early 20th century figure, uh, John J. Chapman, who at one point was uh, one of the best-known essayists uh, in in America, um, a creative essayist. He was also a poet. And there's a famous, famous incident that happened in Coatesville, Pennsylvania, where a black man was lynched. And in a rather very, very gruesome incident. And Chapman read about it, and he went to Kurzweil, Pennsylvania. He rented a room and gave one of the greatest speeches in the American canon. No one showed up for it. No one showed up for it, but he felt he had to do it. And he said that he had taken a look into the cold heart of America, and he had to talk about it. And he's talking about something that we still read about, the bystander's that did nothing to prevent it. It's, it's a powerful, powerful text that grabbed me. It's also also an image of kind of noble futility that, you know, to do this to as, as an intellectual, to come and try to talk some sense <laughs> into people. Of course no one came. And that kind of story got me hooked on him. I want to do a little more with him.
0: As we close out, we'll be hearing a selection from Carrie Newcomer, chosen by Professor armshire that wraps up kind of what we've been talking about today. Tell us more about that.
1: It's a song that Carrie wrote for Scott Russell Sanders' Wilderness Plots, a show produced by several musicians in Bloomington. The song is based on a story about Scott Russell Sanders' savages. It's essentially the story of a man who believed in the peaceable kingdom and moved to Ohio to teach the forest people to be gentle didn't help them. They were shot by the white traders who had not subscribed to that same gospel. And the song is just a very, very beautiful example of Carrie singing. It ends touchingly with that man's son, Isaiah Roth, still believing in the possibility of the peaceable kingdom. As the song ends, he sees a distant Eden on the hill, still not giving up hope.
0: Thank you for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: We've been talking today with IU English professor Christoph Ermscher. This is Gina Asher for Profiles. Thanks for listening.
2: John Roth had a heart like flame. He believed all souls were loved the same. He packed up his hopes and his family and moved to Ohio. deep, dark wilderness, with a newborn son, he soon was blessed, raise him up in the ways of the old prophets, named him Isaiah Ra. do no harm, shed no blood, the only law here is love, we can call
3: The program you just heard was recorded in January of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.